welcome to the Animal Rescue Podcast, which you've always wanted to know but didn't know who to ask. We will be talking with different people throughout the animal rescue world, finding answers to the questions you've been wondering. Okay. All right, Teresa, thank you so much for joining me on the Animal Rescue Podcast. You are, you work with the National Mill Dog Rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get started with rescuing? Well, I've been a rescuer all my life. I think I was in <laughs> kindergarten when I rescued my first dog, which basically wow. meant unchaining it from the tree of our neighbors and asking <laughs> my father if we could bring it home. Nice. And he went past him and, and they said, yeah, you can keep him. Oh. So anyway, we had him until I was gone to college. But anyway, so my rescue life started when I was about five. Um, but mill dogs, so I've been involved in rescue all my life. I've <clears throat> volunteered in shelters since I was single digit ages and just have always had a incredible love of all animals, but dogs particularly are my thing. Three of them laying on my bed right now. Um, anyway, so in February of 2007, um, I got a one sentence email from a little doggy news group that I belong to. And it, all it said was 50 Italian greyhounds in need and a phone number. Wow. I thought, hmm. And I love that breed. And I've rescued in place many over the years. Crazy little neurotic dogs. <laughs> but yeah, it tells you something about me. But anyway, so I called that number. I always say that was the phone call that changed, you know, everything about my life at the time and forever. So I called that number. It was a small um, sighthound group rescue group in Ohio and they had found out about this big dog auction that was and you know at that time even probably the most hardcore rescue people didn't really know dog auctions took place I guess unless you lived in Missouri but yeah and so they found out about this big dog auction was a breeder going out of business and she was auctioning her whole kennel 561 dogs whoa yeah big big kennel uh, actually, at that time, that was probably more average size. That would be, by today's standards, considered a very big kennel. But um, anyway, there were 561 dogs in total, many different breeds, and there were 49 were Italian greyhounds. So yeah, I contacted the group. I said, you know, I know the breed well. I'm I'm happy to help if you know if you need me. Um, and so they said, absolutely. Our goal is to try to get all 49 of them. They didn't get all of them, but they got like 40 of them. So I guess they raised a little bit of money and, you know, they went to the auction and that was their, that was their goal. This was at a time when rescues did not really go to dog auctions, not very many, or if they did, it was kind of an individual person trying to just do a little bit for a few dogs. That's very different today. A lot of rescues go to auctions and there's a lot of controversy around that, but Well, Um, I didn't even know that dog auctions were a thing. Oh, yeah. That's a huge part of the commercial breeding industry. Really? Is the auction houses. And and actually, there used to be several auction houses. Today, there's really only, there's, you know, two that I know of left in the state of Missouri. We don't get our dogs from auction and haven't for many years, but that's how I was introduced to the industry. Um, But this is where, you know, typically an auction has about 300 dogs in it. every breed under the sun, a lot of, you know, sometimes it's a place going out of business and they're auctioning off the whole kennel. Many times it's just a bunch of consigners that consign dogs to an auction on a certain day. And, you know, they're just part of the, part of the um, 
what's in the catalog. So at any rate, this was a big kennel and she was going out of business selling all of her dogs. So the auction house came to them rather than trying to move 560 dogs to yeah. the auction house. Um, they came and, you know, they set up tents and they, they have a whole process that they do. They've been doing it for a long time. And, you know, the auctions are, um, I mean, that's how I was introduced to the industry. That's how I saw it for the first time. And it was really um, just damaging, you know, emotionally yeah. distressing to see that. And on top of that, it wasn't like a consignment auction at the auction house. So it's all the dogs are in, you know, their facility. Mm -hmm. This was the place where these dogs had spent their entire life. And it was, it was just so, um, you know, for somebody like me who loves dogs the way I do and always have, you know, just very disturbing to see them living like this, all caged and frantic and stinky and Many of them were, you know, sick, old, everything under the sun. But anyway, I walked up to the cage that Lily was in, one of the Italian greyhounds who we subsequently kept, and she kind of became our inspiration for the organization. But um, looking into her cage, and typically these are 30 by 30 by 30 inch cube of wire. It's wire all the way around, including under their feet, so the excrement and stuff can fall through. Mm -hmm. But that wire can be really hard on their feet too. Yeah. A lot of male dogs are really foot sensitive and they, and they just remain that way forever because, you know, that's a sore, obviously sore on their feet to walk on that right. all the time. So on the other hand, obviously you wouldn't want them, you know, living in their own excrement. So, you know, the trade-off right. is that this is hard on their feet, but, you know, probably healthier for them than them living in, you know, in all of their excrement. So, Anyway, just seeing that, you know, literally I walked into that first building after I signed in and got the catalog and I was just completely, you know, frozen for a moment. Just, okay, suck it up. Don't cry. Uh, don't go off on people. You know, 99% yeah. of everybody else that's there is another breeder who's there to buy breeding stock. So. Oh. So you have to be, you know, you just have to keep it together. And, you know, we went through that first building and I was literally just like, oh my God. And all of this, not that I knew how it would go forward, not that I even knew what I was doing, but all of this was the beginning moments of NMDR, of National Mill Dog Rescue, because I knew in that moment, I will never sleep again without making a stand mm -hmm. to do something for these dogs. Yeah. And so I came home, I was supposed to come home with two or three dogs. Oh no. And I came home with 13. I'll never oh. forget my husband. Like, I'm sorry, what did you say? It's like, oh, you're breaking up. Click. <laughs> Going um, through a tunnel. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. I'm in Kansas. I'm losing, you know, but anyway, um, you know, that was the very beginning. It really all started because of that email and my subsequent phone call. And then when I, when I told the people I'd be happy to help, and I had experience with the breed and, you know, gave them some contacts to, you know, rescue contacts for references. Um, the issue was the rescue was in Ohio. The dogs, the auction was in Missouri and I'm in Colorado. So how would I get the dogs that they were asked, you know, that they would want me to take care of? So I realized pretty quickly, I'm going to just have to go to this, to this event, this auction. And, um, you know, transport back whoever they want me to take. So that's how I wound up, you know, at the auction. A couple of days later, I got in the car and headed there. 
anyway, came home with 13 dogs and a great big passion to, you know, do something to speak up for this population of dogs that were truly living in the shadows that most people, including me, having been in rescue all my life, didn't really know about, you know, yeah. didn't really understand the magnitude of the problem. So, you know, I came home with 13 dogs <laughs> and uh, had, you know, a couple of rescue friends come here and, you know, help me get them situated. My family's all dog lovers too. And, you know, that was the very beginning. It was um, an incredible journey. These were the most damaged dogs I had ever met in my entire life. Just emotionally, physically, medically, destroyed dogs and there were 13 of them and it took us over a year to place the first 13 we kept the one oh. we kept lily and lily you know if, if nobody has seen lily's likeness um you know she was um seven years old when i rescued her about half the life expectancy for an italian greyhound but already her just years of no dental care um no care whatsoever her teeth were extremely rotten, which subsequently rotted, infected and rotted her lower jaw, which was gone. Wow. And, you know, when I looked into her cage, you know, I, obviously I could see she was immensely disfigured. She was missing about half her face on one side and the jaw was just gone. Um, and I remember I just whispered into her cage and I said, I'm going to take you from this hell and love you till you die. Mm. And we kept that promise along with another promise that has you know, allowed us to save almost 16,000 dogs. Hopefully. Oh my goodness. Yes. We started 14 years ago. We just had our 14th uh, anniversary in February. Congratulations. And we're closing in on 16,000 dogs. So wow. it's been a very busy, um, lots to learn, lots to close your eyes and move past. Um, and you know, that's, that's how the journey began. Wow. What goes into rehabilitating mill dogs? Um, a whole lot of thinking outside the box, to be honest. Uh, there's really no, um, you know, no book written on what to do with dogs like these. Um, we've learned so much from the dogs over the years, how to manage them. We, we, we are, every single dog we bring back here, unless it is medical beyond what is, fair and right to the dog. We will do absolutely mm -hmm. everything in our power to save every one of these dogs, provide heart surgery, orthopedics. I mean, we do wow. all of it. You know, it's, to me, it's kind of like, that is our greatest pride, um, is the care we provide to these dogs that have had none, you know, yeah. or minimal, um, for their entire lives. So, <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, that's, it, it's, Mill dogs, under socialized dogs in general, um, require time and people who know how to bring them forward. There is a point at which you have to push them a little bit, you know, and yeah. you may get nipped for that in certain cases, um, but that's okay. We have never, ever, not one time ever in all those near 16,000 dogs have we ever put a dog to sleep because of fear bites. Yeah. But they do take an awful lot of time to mm -hmm. rehabilitate. They take yeah. time. Some of them, we've had dogs with us as much as three or four years. Not not a ton, but many of them are with us for at least a few months just to get past that hurdle of, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be mm -hmm. near people. Yeah. And typically the best medicine for them, of course, is time and, and understanding how to handle them. Mm 
but I, I'm, I'm certain that everyone at our organization, including our behavior and training manager would say that a good social, healthy-minded dog is a huge piece of the medicine mm -hmm. because they do model that behavior after other dogs. So certain of our dogs that are really, really timid, uh, it, it's often a requirement that the family have another dog because that's how they learn to dog. We, we our, our inclination when you see a fearful or you know wounded animal in any way, emotionally or physically, you know you want to just pick it up and hold yeah. it, and tell them it's going to be okay. You can't do that with a male dog. Mm -mm. They don't understand that. And that's the right. first best way to be bitten. Do they learn? Oh, yes. <laughs> we have 15,000 plus examples of how well they yeah. learn. And then a handful of examples of dogs like, you know, everyone that works with us and that has for a long time um, has at least one or two really screwed up dogs at home that are never going to become normal. Yeah. But at some point, you know, we just don't want them to live their life out in the kennel. So we've all, we all share those really damaged dogs and they too become joyful parts of a family, but they don't, the types that I'm talking about do not get past the human side. So mm -hmm. they just, you know, meld into a little pack yep. and enjoy life that way in a home, but they're not companions to humans that they, they, they've just been too damaged. That's a very, very small percentage, but I will tell you everyone that's around Mill Dog has at least one of those. Yeah. We've had as many as five or six at a time. Oh, wow. Um, a lot of special needs dogs, but you know, that's, that's it. You, it's time, patience, understanding, the help of some good social dogs and people who know how to bring dogs that are this traumatized forward. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about some of the conditions that they live in, you know, it's just a wire mm -hmm. enclosure that the, it's so hard on their feet. What are some of the, what do the conditions look like for a mill dog? Well, typically the dogs are housed, you know, in a, in a pretty traditional licensed facility. Okay. You know, in unlicensed facilities, these are not people that are generally reaching out for my help. <laughs> You know, they're kind of flying under the radar, don't want to be found out and stuff. But in a traditional licensed facility, a traditional building in which small breed dogs are housed, which mills are full of small breed dogs because that's what people want. That's where yep. the money is. That's what the pet stores want. I mean, we see break, larger breed dogs too in the common breeds, labs, goldens, standard poodles, you know, shepherds like that. But the majority of our dogs are small breed dogs because that's what the industry, you know, breeds. So those buildings are called sundowners and they, you know, they look some something similar to like a shed you would see outside of Home Depot or whatever those, you know, out in the parking, you know, those mm -hmm. sheds they sell. However, they're built to size. So if you want a 40 kennel sundowner or a hundred kennel sundowner, when you walk in, they basically, looks like that. It's basically kind of like a garden shed type of structure. Um, they do have heat and air conditioning. Um, inside the building, when you walk in, typically what you'll see is on either side of the, you know, the perimeter walls of the building, there are generally two rows of cages, one on the bottom, one above it. There is a barrier in the middle. Yeah. A lot of people you know, think they're all just pooping and peeing on each other. And, you know, in a licensed facility, that is not the case. That would not pass the, the inspection. But so there's a barrier in between. Um, 
there's a 30 by 30 by 30 inch, basically cube of wire inside the building. There's a metal flap, a dog door, uh, that goes to either that same size space outside the building, or some people have them a little bigger on the outside. Typically the outside of the building where the cages go, you know, where the dog door goes to the outside, those typically have cover over the top, but otherwise they're outside. So in other words, they're not just out in the rain and snow, there is yeah. cover over the top. But, you know, in the best case scenario, okay, so some of the, now these buildings over time, of course, like every other building, if they're not maintained, become, you know, in disrepair and, you know, things aren't working as well or whatever. But even in the best case scenario, even if the sundowner is brand new and it's all clean and you're putting dogs in it for the first time, is this a fair life for a dog? They never come out, the, the mothers come out of the, mama dogs come out of that space, obviously to whelp. They don't do that with, in each of those cages, by the way, this is what I meant to say earlier. In each of those cages in the sundowner, in the small breeds, there's one male and two or three females in every cage. And, and you know, I mean, that's their job in life is to produce puppies. So they're mm -hmm. pregnant, a female in a breeding facility, she's pregnant for two months, she nurses for two months, she rests for two months, uh, nurses for, you know, she raises her litter for two months. Yeah. I mean, they nurse usually five or six weeks before they start weaning. Yeah. But anyway, so pregnant, two months, nursing and caring for puppies for two months, rests for two months, pregnant for two months, you know, that's it. That's wow. their life. That's what it looks like. They do not go outside and play. They do not interact with a lot of people or children or whatever. That's their job in life. You know, I'm not okay with that. Obviously, no. you know, I will even tell breeders, look, you know, we, we just so to understand, we, we don't get our dogs from auction and the reason we don't is early on, number one, A, I didn't have money to go be buying auction dogs all yeah. the time. That didn't, you know, I, while I am extremely grateful for every single dog that comes out of that life and however they get out of that life, there is an awful lot of controversy around buying, you know, yeah. rest dogs. Um, I don't make judgment on anybody who does it. We just don't do it that way. Uh, yeah. Once in a great while, the auction house, whom we have a good relationship with, they know exactly who we are, what we do. Um, you know, if some, he may call and say, look, there's going to be, you know, 40 chihuahuas in that, you know, they may occasionally um, contact me and ask for us to help because they know it's, you know, they know the dogs are either going to not be sold or sell really cheap or whatever. But that doesn't yeah. even hardly happen anymore. So we get our dogs directly from the breeders, puppy millers, breeders. Mm -hmm. Not every breeder is a puppy miller. So that, that's just a plain and simple fact. What's the difference between a breeder and a puppy mill or even like a backyard breeder? Yeah, uh, you know, the bottom line to me is how do you take care of your dogs, right? Do they get medical care? Do you you know, at least put an eyeball on them and be able to pick out who might not feel well today and do something about it. Do they ever get out of the cage? Are your hands ever touching them? You know, all of those are really the, you know, if somebody has a hundred dogs and breed and, you know, for breeding purposes and they take immaculate care and I do work with some breeders who have that many dogs and they are immaculately cared for. That's not a puppy mill. 
you know, uh, it's, but to me, really what it boils down to is how does an individual business care for their dogs? And that's where you, for me, where I begin to draw the line between, okay, you're a breeder, you're a puppy mill. You know, breeders are extremely offended by the term puppy mill. Yeah. Because there are decent breeders and I work with decent breeders. I would probably say 10%. We work with about, I've probably worked with a thousand breeders over these years, but you know, many, 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 many are gone out of business. So um, I would say of the 250 or so that we currently work with, um, you know, I wish it was a better number, but it's not, (laughs) but you know, about 10%, you know, one out of 10 of them take immaculate care of their dogs. When we get their dogs, I know exactly, boom. They've had dentals. They've been groomed all their life. The, and, and this larger scale, you know, one I'm thinking right off the top of my head, probably, I think she has about 85 dogs. Wow. Immaculate. Every dog we get from her, social, happy, you know, they, we just spay and neuter them and they are snatched nice. right up. Like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. That's, that's about 10%. Of the remaining, it's everywhere on a spectrum from, eh, okay, you know, mediocre, to the worst thing you could ever possibly imagine that I wouldn't even want to share with people. Wow. And again, that's a pretty small number too on the worst end yeah. because those people don't want to give us their dogs and get in trouble. Right. So, you know, so there's every kind of breeder out there. If you don't see it with your own eyes, you know, and this more speaking to somebody, you know, in search of a puppy, if you can't see the place with your own eyes, a decent breeder, a wants to know who the hell you are. Yeah. Right? A wants to know who you are. I'll take the bad word out of it. Um, I'm really good at those. Um, and and B should be nothing but proud of showing you your puppy's parents, the facility in which it was born. You know they don't do that. You know that yeah. is not. You know you, that's typically the breeder that maybe has five or six dogs, but that's not who's producing the majority of pets for America. Obviously puppies. Yeah. So it's the bigger scale places, but you know, to me, there is no trade-off. These are your puppies. You put them on the planet. You're selling them to the public. There's no trade-off to me, but that's not how it works to them. It, yeah. it's, it's mass production. Um, you know, most of them broker their puppies out and the puppy just goes to a pet store and they have no idea whoever got their dog. You know, wow. I personally think, you know, and obviously, when you're breeding hundreds of puppies a year, you can't know every parent, uh, you know. But, you know, again, I would that would never work for me because believe me, if you're going to get a dog from me, I'm going to know who you are. You know, I mean, I yes. have to because the responsibility of, you know, putting an animal into someone's hands is huge to me. It's right. just, you know, kind of like a kid, right? So you don't want to put him in a bad situation. So, you know, there's just, there's so many layers to this problem. I really, I know absolutely nothing about puppy mills and breeding. So I, a little bit of background about me, I volunteer Uh with my local shelter. Okay. Where are you? Where are you physically located? I am in North Alabama. Oh, okay. Oh God. (laughs) You're a ways away. Yes. Yes. So I started out, you know, volunteering there and um, it just got to the point where I started fostering too. Oh, cool. And yeah. so 
the majority of my knowledge of breeding is adopt don't shop. Yeah. <laughs> like there are five. Adopt don't shop is an interesting. I wrote a big article a few years ago, um, just because so many people had you know a lot of questions and. Anyway, adopt don't shop. Of course, one thousand million percent. I understand and agree with that. The problem is, it's unrealistic. Yeah. You are, you, unfortunately, we can't turn every single person that wants a family pet, especially if they want a puppy, into someone who's going to run down to the local shelter. You know, first of all, they think every dog in the shelter is just a complete disaster train. Right. Of course, we both know is not so, but that's what people think. And you're not, you know, shelters are full of dogs who, all, I tell people this all the time, the dog is already here. Mm -hmm. Somebody else already screwed it over. Right. Right. It's our, I believe it's our this whole entire puppy mill issue, overcrowded shelter issue, it's a betrayal of our relationship with these dogs. And every time somebody thinks that, you know, there's just some, every dog in the shelter is screwed up. So we have no choice. I've, I've had people tell me that all the time. I, I thought every single dog, you know, was just really had problems like, yeah, you know, no, people are the problem, right? Absolutely. People are the problem. They don't commit you know, mm -hmm. and deeply commit and lifelong commit. And so they're the problem. So, so I, I mean, I really, I've, this is one of those topics that I know probably the least about when it comes to the rescue world. Mm -hmm. um, and in Alabama, so I'm originally from Minnesota. Okay. We in Minnesota, generally the shelters there or the rescues there pull from the South. Mm -hmm. So then coming down now here, you're in the south, yeah, right. So it's just a completely different perspective on everything that's going on in the rescue mm -hmm. world. And mm -hmm. one of the biggest problems that I see here is, I don't know if there are any actual, um, you know, puppy mills or uh, reputable breeders, but there's a lot of backyard breeding, a lot of, and that you know, basically it's the same. Yeah. Back here. What I deal with when we go out to, you know, the big commercial breeding states, which are the Dust Bowl states, Missouri, number one, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, Nebraska. Those are, you may find this interesting, just yeah. saying you don't know a whole lot. The, the industry started, how did it all start? It started after World War II. Oh, wow. All of our, yeah, all of our soldiers came home you know, we've just been through a world war. Agriculture in the United States was in the toilet because of that. So there was a lot of exposure to, you know, Europeans are, have been dog crazy forever and all the beautiful purebred dogs. And so our soldiers were exposed to that during the war. There was a lot of exposure. These people are walking down the street with these, you know, gorgeous kind of creatures you know tethered to them it was like weird you know or yeah. just different at home yeah. here during that time and prior dogs were farm animals dogs yeah. were you know we all had grandparents who had a dog in the garage or very few people you know kept dogs the way we do now 
And so there was a, an interest in that. And, and that interest led to a demand for it. So our United States Department of Agriculture, in an effort to stimulate the agricultural industry, encouraged farmers to raise a whole new crop, puppies. They imported the puppy, this breeding stock, they subsidized it. What the hell did, breed, did farmers know about canine husbandry? Nothing. Yeah. And where did they have to put the dogs? Barns, rabbit hutches, that's what they had. And it took off like wildfire. Those songs, how much is that doggy in the window? Boom, that was early 50s. So within a few years, pet shops start popping up all over the place. And for 65, 70 years, a pure hell industry that nobody really knew much about. You know, the advent of this technology and us being able to just, you know, you know, communicate on a dime with anybody everywhere. And, you know, that changed rescue a lot because now, you know, dogs are moved all over the country mm -hmm. and, you know, we could, I could, I was part of that news group. That's what brought me that first email that made me go and, and, you know, go to Missouri to begin with. So, but that's, you know, very brief history. That's how it started. That's and, fascinating. you know, for anybody who even thought about asking, first of all, what happens when you walk in a pet store? Uh, you know, you're just immediately, once the puppy's right here in your hand, mm -hmm. you're done. You know, it's a baby animal. Like who right? doesn't want that, you know? And so it took off like wildfire and, and the USDA being the agency who created the problem, then became the agency who licensed and inspected the problem. And for very, 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 very many decades, many years, decades, it was extremely shoddy. You know, yes, they did the, it, it, believe me when I tell you the changes I've seen even just in the last five years are incredible. So the, so the good news is it is changing. Uh, is it all better? Oh no. <laughs> right. No. And, you know, again, we probably work with, um, you know, 3% of all breeders, commercial breeders, I don't know, maybe even less than that. So most of the breeders we work with are licensed. So there is some standard they're having to follow. Now that doesn't, let me just tell you, that doesn't mean all of yeah. the dogs are in great shape or anything, but you know, there is some accountability there. We work with a handful that are unlicensed and believe me, that can be uh, shocking, yeah. but at any rate, uh, and we do what we can, but the problem is you, when, when, when they don't have a license, um, the state has no recourse because there's no collateral there to, you know, there's yeah. nothing to hold up against them. So you then have to work with local law enforcement. And while I'm not going to say no, none of these people care about the animals, they, they probably most of them do, but you're talking about you know, one sheriff and a deputy covering, you know, XYZ counties with meth labs and, you know, some lady yeah. up the road with a bunch of dogs is not really, you know, they're just dealing with stuff that is in their world and probably in reality, a higher priority, even though we don't like that. So when you, so you don't have a lot of recourse, you know, I often think, you know, are we just band-aiding this whole thing? You know, we, 
legislative efforts, we support all of those. We stay completely out of politics because that's how we set up our, our nonprofit. Because one, I'm apolitical and don't want to do politics of any sort, hate it. And two, um, you know, while there are very good organizations um, and very well-funded organizations and very impactful organizations um, that can accomplish things like that, getting, you know, legislation on a ballot. And and believe me, that's about as much political talk as I can muster (laughs) up. I don't even know how it works, but by choice, but regardless, um, you know, those efforts are all very important. And the problem, but the problem is they don't go anywhere fast, okay? They don't go anywhere fast. It is not easy to get legislative efforts put on a ballot. Um, And then, you know, you lose. (laughs) And so during all these 14 years, I think just my stance as an apolitical human being and really just despising politics of every sort, um, it made me say, well, obviously that's not what I'm going to do because it's not my interest. What my interest is though, is saving these dogs. And so for the 14 years that other organizations are working on legislative efforts and, and um, you know, just improving conditions of which all we support, of course, you know, we've saved almost 16,000 dogs. So do I think what we do is better than what they do or more? But no, it's all important, but this is our niche. So this is what we do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. I mean, just rescuing just, or just being in the rescue world. I mean, it's so easy to get burnt out. And if you try to just get involved in every aspect of it, you're all, you can't, you're you, you really have to sort of pick your, um, you know, what obviously your passion and, and what you're good at, you know, I mean, obviously we had to learn how to do a lot of what we've done over time. I mean, we have a big facility we have our own vet clinic. We, we've been very, oh, wow. very fortunate. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We, we have our own full service, state of the art, everything under the sun, vet clinic, surgery room, dental room, ICU, you know, x-ray lab, everything, an amazing vet team. And, you know, a lot of people think all these people donate their time. Well, of course they don't, where they're working their tails off, you know, eight to 10 hours a day with very complex medical stuff every day of the week. So that is paid staff, of course, but, but, you know, we've been extremely fortunate to be able to have all that we do in just 14 years time. Uh, Now I'm not going to say we haven't worked night and day. Oh, I bet. Uh, I have been on two vacations in 14 years. Oh no. no, It's fine. You know, no complaints. None. Right. Never been happier, but it is not for the faint of heart to try Mm -mm. to, you know, start a big, um, and and to be honest with you, I had no idea this would happen. We started this when I came home with those 13 dogs. My kids had a little chicken business when they were little, they sold eggs and they showed their birds in 4-H and all the birds lived their lives out here with us. But sometimes in my kid's room, if they were, <laughs> but at any rate, so the chickens all moved out of the chicken coops. We quickly renovated the chicken coops, put windows in and sheetrock. I had a couple of good friends that are, you know, good at construction and we called them the canine cottages and that's where it all started. And that's how it started 14 years ago. And then two years into it, we moved out to a kennel facility that had been empty for many years out east of here. Um, 
we rented that for a few years and ultimately we bought it. And we, in fact, we just like a month ago, we have two major improvements on the property. One was the vet clinic and rehab center. We have a 10 kennel rehab center uh, and a full service state of the art. People come through there and they're like, oh my gosh, this is like nicer than any vet. I mean, it's incredible. One donor. One wow that million and a half dollar building for us. That's so because amazing. he's followed our work from day one. He lives 10 minutes from my house. I never knew he had anything, just a lovely man in our community. But it turns out, you know, he does and he loves what we do. He's a huge dog lover and has adopted mm -hmm. many dogs from us, but um gave us that gift. And last year, pandemic hell. Mm -hmm. We opened uh, another wing, an 18 uh, kennel run wing, beautiful, just incredibly, I mean, just incredible. And now we're just to start a renovation on the original part of the building, building a big indoor play yard for the dogs, and then a couple of desperately needed offices and an education and training room. So, you know, we've been, we have worked extremely hard. And when I talk about extremely hard, I'm not sure a lot of people understand the level of what I'm talking about two hours of sleep a night for the first, I don't know, eight years. Wow. Because there is nobody else, you know, it's no, like, there isn't. you're the ones here, you're it. So, um, but we have amazing, amazing people, staff and volunteers, truly amazing. Probably have about 400 very active volunteers, uh, incredible staff, our vet staff, our cleaning crew, our rehab team, our adoption people, foster. I mean, just incredible. And which, by the way, if I've learned one thing, because my other job is I'm a pediatric oncology nurse, and that's what I've done for my- Oh whole my career. goodness. Well, and I mean, I haven't worked in a, in a hospital in probably about five years now because of all this. There's only so much to go around, but- Absolutely. Um, um, I forgot what I was going to say there, but anyway. So, you know, it's, we had a lot to learn, you know, a lot to learn. You know, like I said, I've run the halls of hospitals at night for 35 years. What did I know about building and creating and running and managing a nonprofit, all of its people, the finance, you know, all of yeah. it. It's, just, it's an incredible undertaking, but here we are. So that's amazing. Yeah. That's so amazing. Now, I want to get back to the dogs for a minute. Sure. What are, what's the impact of overbreeding? Overbred, dog, I mean, dogs in a puppy mill, as I mentioned earlier, they are, you know, pregnant for two months, nursing, caring for their puppies for two months, resting for two months. So they're having a litter every six months. Oftentimes they are starting that from the first heat. So quite frankly, they're still puppies themselves. Yeah. You know, you're talking somewhere between six and 12 months, depending mm -hmm. on breed and a, a size and all that. But that's yeah. typically when they, oftentimes, which should not be done, by the way. Dogs no. should not be bred on their first heat, period. They're still puppies. You know, a solid, decent breeder isn't going to breed that dog till it's probably two years old. Yeah. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't amount to, you know, you're not going to take dogs from puppyhood, raise them for two years, you know, feed them and every, you know, that's not how it works. They are right. bred immediately from heat one till they can't breed anymore. So typically what that looks like in a smaller breed dog, uh, a lot of them have to have C-sections um, just because they're small. Yeah. I mean, I don't say a lot, but any of them that have had 
multiple C-sections, you know, what would normally be a 15, 20 minute spay from open to close might be two hours because they're having to go in and take out all the scar tissue that's created oh. from C-sections. Um, you know, it depletes their bodies of calcium and, you know, important uh, nutrition. Uh, I think that makes their bones potentially more fragile. Um, you know, their little bodies just get completely, I mean, imagine being, you know, eight pounds and every six months you, you got to raise, you know, five of these little four, five, six, whatever of these little creatures that are sucking the nutrients out of you. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot to recover from. Um, you know, people think, oh, they starve the dogs in puppy mills. No, they don't starve the dogs because obviously starving dogs could not make puppies. Right. right? So they're actually, they're fed automatically. Uh, on the front of the cage in a traditional building, like I was talking about earlier, the sundowner. On the cage door, there's a, they call them P52 feeders, and it's just like a red plastic box. It has a little um, tray, scoop, you know, a little bullish thing on the bottom of it that sticks into the cage, just a little bit, just a little bit, just maybe an inch or two. And you just go in, you know, and just fill those red peas and they can hold probably a week's worth of food or more, I would imagine. And then in every, and then there's a copper pipe that runs through the building as well. And dropping down into each cage, there's a little, it's called the Lickit system, licks it, lick, lickets, licks it, whatever, I mean, a Lickit yeah. system. And it's basically just a little uh, copper pipe that comes down in the pay and into the cage and they lick that. And it's, it's like a rabbit bottle watering system. Yeah. The issues around that is a dogs cannot be properly hydrated by that. No, you're getting a little drop and you know, it's just not, I mean, obviously they can hydrate enough to stay alive, but it's not. And, you know, not being able to drink out of a bowl where you can kind of just get water and sort of flush some of the food that mm -hmm. contributes. It's not the primary reason, but it certainly contributes to the rot in their mouth because of, you know, yeah never able to kind of just get a good lap at water and flush the mouth out of it so i mean that's it it's a very monotonous mechanical life for these dogs um when is it time to be done when you can't make puppies anymore typically for a female it's somewhere between five and eight years old except poodles and bichons who can have a nice big you know eight puppy litter there's six puppy litter till they're like 12 oh wow so, for them um and so usually between five and eight, that's when they, you know, they either, they get bred and there's no puppies. So they call that a miss mm -hmm. or they get bred and there's, you know, one puppy, one or two, or they get bred and there's two or three and they die because, you know, she just can't do this anymore. Her body won't do it anymore. Yeah. And they retire on toss. And by the way, let's not forget, we're talking about a very small percentage of these people across the board. So there's a lot of room for, you know, more rescue of these dogs. Mm -hmm. I'm actually working on that right now. We have partners all over the country. Everybody that we partner with, and there's a very, very, just so everybody hears that, a very strict process uh, through which I um, approve another group to work with us. And it's not because I, I know everybody's heart is in it and, I, and it's not a judgment thing. It's that People, number one, people see, oh, you got Maltese and Yorkies and Chihuahuas and Shih Tzus and what, and they just, woo, you know, because it's hard to get a small breed dog in a shelter setting. Mm -hmm. You're just happy, you, you know, that's what everybody wants. And you're frankly, you're just lucky if you happen to be in there when they stick a small dog in the window. Yep. 
because they're snatched right up. You know that you work yeah. in shelter. So when people see her website and it's full of Maltese and Yorkies and Shih Tzus and Poodles and you know everybody wants every dog, it's like oh, they're Mildred. Yes. They're not normal. Now, when I say not normal, they're going to have some quirk. Almost every single one of them because that's how they live. You know, we, we do partner with other groups all across the country. We work with groups from California to New York, up and down. Um, most of the time, uh, I would say we, we rescue about, about 100 dogs a month, and we care for and place about three quarters of the dogs that we rescue, about 75%. When we have situations, we just responded to an emergency situation in January and February, actually December and January, and then another one in February, uh, over 100 chows, okay, chow chow dogs, not easy wow. dogs. Uh, not the easiest dog. Can't believe we never, none of us got bitten, but believe me, it's again, it's because we know how to do this work. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, we had to live trap some of them I and mean, it was terrible and they're not in cages, right? Because you can't put a dog that big in a small cage. Mm -hmm. So they were just wandering in this area. You know, we had, it was the guy, oh abandoned. it's a long story, but at any yeah. rate, we respond to stuff like that often enough, at least a few times a year, I'm going to get the, oh my God, you know, something horrible has happened and we got to respond to that. That's when our partners come in really handy um, because we may respond to, we responded to something a couple of years ago, it was like 250 dogs. Well, obviously we can't, you know, take 250 dogs here. Um, so we build those partnerships, one, so that we can maximize how many dogs we save, um, but also so that those places can tell the stories of the dogs they, they get from us and educate people about this problem. And also it's really my full on, um, backup plan when we run into a horrible situation where there's hundreds of dogs in need and we don't have room. Mm -hmm. So, but it's not, it, there's a whole process by which I, you know, approve people to work with. And again, only not because I don't understand that everybody's heart is in the right place and all of that, but they can be extremely expensive to take care of too. Extremely expensive. Those dentals, yeah. when we have a dog on the table for two to three hours and we're doing a full mouth extraction, Ooh. we do them all day, every day, all the time. Every tooth has to come out. They're all rotten. That dog, people will say right away, oh my gosh, how do they eat? How do they, oh, the poor, better than ever. They have been living with a, can you, have you ever had yeah. one toothache? You know what I mean? Yeah. Better than ever. The minute those teeth are out, this dog is a whole new dog, but that's why a lot of our dogs are like that. Yeah. My little papillon on the end of the bed <laughs> because the teeth kind of keep the tongue in. And so that, you know, that's just, that's, that's a mill dog thing. You know, some people find it kind of like, ew, but it's like, well, they're healthy. And hello, when all the teeth are gone, you never have to worry about the teeth again right so much healthier for it now obviously the healthiest thing is that the teeth are there right. for, our dogs don't have that so yeah know, we don't care. so um yeah so we use partners across the country um we just brought some we have some mountain partners here in colorado we just brought some dogs up to them which is always fun yeah um yeah what else? What are the implications of buying a puppy from a breeder, pup, puppy mill? Like, from what I've learned, if you're going to breed, it has to be 
the right temperament from the mom and the dad? Oh, yes. Health and temperament. Every single purebred dog has at least one, <laughs> and in some cases, many German Shepherds, mm. lots of them, inherent pro health problems in the breed. So a good breeder, and believe it or not, some of the larger scale, puppy mills, whatever you want to call them. I always try to say I prefer to, it is a, it's a large scale breeder. Some of the breeders that we work with do all the genetic testing on their dogs. They have DNA done. You know, these are people who are really trying. It doesn't always work because nature is what it is. We're really trying to at least maintain the health and temperament and look of a certain breed. But then you have some who could care less and they're gonna, anybody who's gonna make puppies is gonna get bred. Health and temperament are critical because just like the genetics of human beings, you know, it's no different in dogs. If you have an unhealthy dog, whether you know what the problem is or not, or you have an ill-tempered dog, the likelihood of them passing that on to their puppies is high. They should not be bred you know, but not every breeder. It's like, eh, I got me a Shih Tzu right here. I don't care what it has. It makes puppies. I'm going to do it. You know, right. um, health temperament. I mean, I, a true breeder, uh, you know, as I read it or as I've read it, you know, somebody who's breeding for the love of a certain breed, um, you know, really what they're supposed to be trying to do is, is bring the dog closer to its, you know, AKC standard in you know looks and temperament and mm -hmm. movement and all that obviously that's not what they're doing in in a puppy mill no. that, you mm -hmm. know, once in a great while you'll come upon a breeder who actually does do some of the genetic testing and stuff and x-rays and whatever but most of them don't and yet is a very critical part of you know the health of what you're going to get out of their puppies that are sitting in the pet store so how do people find out or how how can someone know if they're getting a puppy from a reputable, reputable breeder, someone who knows what they're doing when they're mating these. You, you, you can go online. We probably have a link to it on our website too, but all the questions to ask, right? The questions to ask the breeder that you are, you know, inquiring about purchasing a puppy from. And they're, they're all over the internet and they're all pretty standard. You know, how do you, how do your parents kept, do you do any genetic testing? How was the puppy raised? When did it have shots and deworming and blah, 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 blah. But the most important question that you can ask is, may I come and see where this puppy was raised and meet its parents? And if the answer to that is no, move on. It's not reputable. As I, you know, a reputable breeder wants to know who you are. Mm -hmm. wants you to see their fabulous facility. Um, you know, obviously a larger scale breeder, if somebody has 15 or 20 dogs, they're probably not all living in the house, you know? So at some point there is going to be a kennel situation in a larger scale breeding facility. That doesn't mean it's puppy. Milk. Yeah. But are they going to let you come and see that? A lot of them will say, Oh, you know, we don't let anybody in our buildings because, you know, we're afraid of what you might bring in, which, you know, is not unreasonable, but most of the time it's not the real reason. Yeah, <laughs> That's the problem. They don't want you to see what's inside the building. So a lot of times you go to these places 
that you look at a puppy in the paper on the online, whatever, and you're going to go meet it. I will tell you, I know this firsthand and I never say anything. I don't know firsthand anymore. I've learned about that. <laughs> um, there are like in these backyard breeding scenarios, much more so than a commercial breeding facility, but like a, in the backyard breeding scenarios, some, some in this town, this happens. There's, so you have all these outlying, you know, communities on the plains and more rural, and that's where these people are. Well, together, maybe four or five of them rent a house in Colorado Springs, okay? And that's their puppy meeting place. And that's where people come to meet the puppies. And they think it's just like this lovely person in their house, and they're just a nice family, and they just had a golden and their neighbor, and, and they, there's some story for everything. Right. Not true, not where the parents are living, not how the puppies are raised. Not, you, there's nothing some of these unscrupulous people will not do. Am I gonna say every breeder is that way? Of course not. It's not because that's not true either, but, but there is that. You, you, you can't be careful enough. You, you literally can't be careful enough, which leads me back to the same thing I always have to say at the end. Just go to the shelter or go mm -hmm. to a rescue. Mm -hmm. These dogs are already here. You know, puppies, number one, you know, we see people all the time. Oh, it has to be eight weeks old. Okay, we have one of those, whatever, have any, it's 12 weeks. Oh, no, it's too old. Okay, if they're too old at 12 weeks, then they're right. too old. Then, then you, it's too old. Every, you know, people are marketed into believing they got to bring that little eight-week-old baby home. Well, guess what? In a month, <laughs> your eight-week-old baby is going to be this dog. Right. What is the, like, and they're all a pain when they're little. Like, what is your, you know? you know, just slow down and consider that there are animals in shelters all over this country that our fellow man put in that position. And I believe it is our responsibility to clean that mess up. Mm -hmm. We do. We owe it to the dogs to do that much for them. No matter how old, no matter how anything, we owe it to them to clean up the mess of what other people have done to put them in that position. That's the way I see it. So. Yeah. What is, one more question. What is one thing that you wish that more people understood when it comes to breeding or rescuing or anything that from your experience, like what's one thing? Well, probably in the top spot would be yes, no, all shelter dogs are not broken, damaged goods, okay? So they're not horribly troubled. Every reason under the sun, which mostly traces back to an irresponsible owner, yeah. but that dogs may wind up, I mean, anybody's dog might wind up in the shelter if it slips a gate. I'm not calling those people irresponsible, but if you don't go right. find your dog, that was your dog living in your house with your family, and you can't make your way down to the Humane Society to look for your dog, then yeah, you suck and that's the way it goes, period. Yep. It is a lifelong commitment that a lot of people just don't, you know, don't seem to understand. I'll just put another light on. Is that better? <laughs> I felt like I was in the dark. Oh, that works. Anyway, um, you know, when you look at it, do you really have to have an eight-week-old baby? <laughs> really? I mean, there's all kinds of year, two-year dogs with tons of life left that are sitting in shelters and rescues that need a home. And then let me just say, my favorite dogs ever since I was a little girl are senior dogs. Oh, 
just every dog I've ever had in my life that I chose was old, old, because I like old dogs, but I also feel they are the ones who best highlight how somebody betrayed a, just a kind and gentle dog. You know, mm -hmm. how do you do that? There's people that come into the shelter here. I mean, I have friends that work at the shelter and they're, I said, I would not, I, I, I would be fired in one day. <laughs> Uh, you're bringing your dog in because you're moving. What are you, a moron? You're bringing right. your dog in because you got a younger dog? <sighs> like, see this. And it, it just, you know, the commitment to a dog is for its life. It's not for whatever period of time it fits into your life. It's right. for the life of the dog. You know, this is a sentient being who gives you every single ounce of their love and loyalty. You don't say goodbye to that until the dog dies or you do, okay? right? That's the way I see it. So, you know, for some people, I think they need to reconsider. I talked to a lady yesterday. I said, look, I think you really need to reconsider. Maybe a cat would be better. Like it's gotta have this and this, it can't be this. It has to be this and it gotta be this color and this, you know, and then, oh, oh what gosh. about when I go away? What about, it's so expensive. Well, then you don't need a dog, right? you know, then don't, don't get a dog. Well, I want the companionship. Well, then get a cat, maybe get a hamster. I hear they can, you know, be really sweet and friendly and stuff too. You know, so <laughs> people should really, I mean, you know, a commitment to any pet is for its life, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, we are so, our organization, we get nothing but complaints about how, you know, look, I adopted a baby from Asia and it was easier than getting a dog from you. It's like, well, sorry, this is our process. Right. You know, go through a, a tremendous um, physical, emotional, financial expense to go and get these dogs. And they are not handed over to the per first person that has an adoption fee in their hand. Right. That's not how it works for us. So, Well, and that's the sign of a reputable rescue, too. The yeah. fact that you have yeah. to jump through hoops yep. and you have to prove that, yes, you have a fenced-in yard or you have a way yep. to keep them secure. Mm -hmm. You have a way to take care of them. They're going to be safe. They're going to be protected. Yeah. So. yeah. And so we're really sticklers about that. And, but, you know, we, every dog we have gets adopted and, you know, but we're sticklers about that. It's, yeah. you know, and it's not to say we don't ever have a dog returned. Of course we do. We, we, we adopt out some difficult dogs, you know, and we, obviously we share for some of our more difficult dogs, the adopter is actually required to come and on a routine basis, spend some time with the dog and our rehab team at the kennel mm -hmm. so that they can learn, you know, what we do and, you know, whatever. But anyway, I'm a real stickler and, and I do understand things change in people's lives, dog, you know, the dog, maybe the, whatever. I understand there are extenuating circumstances, but sure. I'm moving or I got another dog or none of that is good enough. I mean, like, no, you know, if the dog is biting you and we do have dogs, we have a dog that just got returned today because he, you know, persistently biting, he just could not connect to the person in the home and it's a good person, but the dog is damaged. And so he had to come back today. Well, and but, I think that's the thing too. I mean, sometimes it just doesn't work out. Mm -hmm, yeah. And again, that's not the judgment. It's right. people that come in and, you know, eh, we're moving around this. Right. He's these, yeah, people understand the difference between what a good reason is and yes. what and, and all the not good reasons. Yes. And you know, it's it's a lifetime commitment. So when you walk into the shelter, the wherever you're getting the dog, you mm -hmm. know, carrying 
always keeping in mind this is a right. 15 year commitment you know I well, just especially in your line with mill dogs like it may take trying out a relationship with a few dogs to find the one that yeah. fits to find the yeah. one that yes this that the bond is there yes yeah and and we do we you know we do, we have we have a video when you apply for one of our dogs the first thing that you know you'll hear back from the adoptions team but the first thing that's a requirement to do is watch i think it's like it's basically like a ted talk it's like a 8 16 minute video um and it goes over all the various top sort of five problems that we see with mill dogs fear flight risk as a result of that um flight risk is a big deal for our dogs if these dogs get away from you they're gone wow okay, they're not it, when they're still in that phase of learning how to be a dog and be part of your family uh you know the dog already has to start out fearful okay not every one of our dogs wouldn't do that right. but but if they see us you know get out a gate or whatever off to the races and we provide our, we have our lost dogs team. It, people contact us from all over the country, actually even out of the country to get our protocol for what happens when we have a lost dog. And when we have, when our lost dogs team is for the lifetime of every dog we adopt out. This is a service for the rest of its life. And that is that if, if the dog goes missing, you contact, we have a hotline. And I mean, these people, <laughs> You cannot believe what goes into play when we have a lost dog. We have one right now. The dog was adopted to a family in Kansas and she's lost. Oh no. But that's all right. We're providing all the back end support. Like we have a, our lost dogs team is probably one of the most remarkable teams at our place. Because when you're looking for a lost mill dog, and usually they're this big, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm here to tell you uh, this is one of the most challenging. And everybody's freaked out, right? Because there's a dog involved, you know, and if it's right. snowing or if it's a busy area, I mean, uh, these are lost dogs team. The second a lost dog comes in, they create a flyer, picture of the dog, picture of the, I'll show you the one that's lost right now. It just came in a little like an hour ago. This doesn't happen very often, but I would say we probably have about one a month, but that's the group text. I, can you see it? I think the background is kind of masking it out. Background. Well, anyway, yes. that's shit. Anyway, <laughs> um, anyway, so they make a full a, a flyer, and it'll have information. You know, it's a picture of the dog on it, obviously. And in this case, lost dog Shawnee, Kansas. God, last seen at seventy first and whatever. Me, it's a standard pool wearing collar. You know, often it'll say scared, do not chase, because that's yep. it. and reward. We put reward on every single one. And if somebody wants a reward, we're going to give them a damn reward. Yeah. Okay. Period. Not a million dollars, obviously. <laughs> Most people do not want a reward, but we put it on there because if that's what's going to make us people right. help us find a dog, then we'll give you a reward. Yeah. A couple hundred bucks, a gift card, whatever. Um, and then they put, you know, two different phone numbers on there. These people, now this one's in Kansas, so obviously we can't do our normal drill, but that flyer goes out. We have a group text. So everybody that's on the Lost Dogs team is aware and communicates via a group text. We have, we, we activate something called Find Toto, which is a computer, it's, it's a service you pay for. Um, it's a computer generated calling tree, basically. So you to give them the spot where the dog went missing and you pay XYZ to, to hit 
you know, a thousand phone numbers and IP addresses, or you pay XYZ more to hit 5,000. And from a kind of an ever widening circle from where the dog went missing, it pings all these either phones or, or computers to, uh, to let people know there's a missing dog in your neighborhood. This is what it looks like, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. The beauty of that is it doesn't always work because sometimes they're hiding, right? And there is no sighting. Yeah. But when it does work, and it, it almost always works, but when it does work, it, it gives our team information on where to search. So for example, the dog may have gone missing from you know right here, middle of town. And now we start seeing sightings and they're all over here to the Northeast. Well, obviously we're gonna move our, our boots on the ground in the direction the dog is going. They are handing out minis. They are posting flyers absolutely every single where. We have somebody at home who's monitoring a pin drop as the sightings of dogs, I mean, it's incredible. And as and because of that, we have like a 92% live find rate within 48 hours. Wow. Which, and, and it's not like we're dealing with dogs that are just running over to play with the neighbor. Yeah. Or, you know, want to go sit in somebody else's lap. We're dealing with terrified animals who are often hiding and they don't show themselves till they start to get hungry or, cold, mm -hmm. you know, whatever for two or three days. I mean, That's it's just amazing. once, yeah, if we don't get them in that first 48 hours, it's usually going to be a week or two. And once in a great while, never, never to be found again. Wow. That kills us. That, oh, yeah. that has probably happened five times in 15,000 plus dogs. But, but believe me, those are the five most remembered mm -hmm. lost dogs we've had. Yeah. Because it kills us, you know. And so, and these are also reasons why we don't just go, oh, yeah, any old group that wants to work with us, they got to right. understand this is some serious stuff with these dogs. They, you know, they have a level of fear that is, it's not the I've been beaten fear or kicked, or it's not that kind of fear. It's, it's just an abject distaste for human beings. Yeah. And you have to fix that for them, you know, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's been. Uh, yeah interesting learning of all these different behaviors so this is fascinating for me truly oh, oh cool and yeah I look, love you know we can just blab anytime i mean oh, I've yeah. so much over the years but um no, i love learning about all the different aspects of rescue because really there's so much oh it's endless there's so endless. much that goes into it and different missions you know have different working parts mm -hmm. right so there's a lot to learn from different missions too yeah. so ours is mill dogs but you know, shelter dogs and fighting dogs and pit, mm -hmm. the pit bull problem, which is just devastating. Ugh. We have one and she is, she's got, pity. yeah, she's got more personality than I know what to do with, but she is just, ugh. no, they're the best dogs. I could not it, imagine. And, and again, and we have just so, you know, you'll appreciate this if you like pity. We have a, ha a little car, again, like those houses you see outside of Home Depot. Yeah. Um, we got one of those specifically for a pit bull. It was, it, it, there's a place in town here called the shed yard. And this, and this is one of their little, it was like an offsite office. So it's like not, I mean, 10 by 12 or something, but it was one of their offsite kind of model offices. So it's all insulated, has like knotty pine walls inside electricity. They gave it to us for 2,500 bucks. When they, when they closed that location, they, they were selling it for five grand right at a time when we had a pit bull we don't you don't see pit bulls in commercial breeding facilities that, yeah that, that's not the same problem it's a mm -mm. different problem just as big a problem maybe worse um 
And so a friend of mine has a little rescue. I met her years ago in Western Kansas, gets no help, no volunteers, no, no donut. You know, I mean, just, I don't know how she does it. Yeah. I really don't. And she's amazing. And she saves these dogs and, and nobody, she gets literally like two people that walk through the door a year to adopt. So she has to work with other groups. Mm -hmm. And we met serendipitously many years ago and she had a pity there who came to her rescue to her shelter but then she created a rescue as well because the city wants her to euthanize every single thing that walks in the door in 72 hours. that hour 73 whatever day that is everybody gets yeah she doesn't do that no but what she had to do on her own as a single person working on her own was build these pens outside where she because they they're not even allowed to be in the city's building which is a little freaking minor nothing after 72 hours even oh. if there's no other animal in there so she has to move them to the outside i mean it's unreal it's so ridiculous it's, she's amazing though she's one of my favorite people she's just a very basic smart loves the animals nobody i don't know who's going to take that over when she's gone mm. you know she's not not like she's dying but you know like i don't know who's going to do it because nobody's going to do it because yeah. it's hard and she mm -hmm. does it alone but anyway, um, she had this pit bull there who, you know, came by way of whatever, and she got him enrolled in the Kansas State Prison Training Program. And our, our prison training program here in Colorado is a very, very professional one. And I'm not saying the one in Kansas is, and I don't even know who does that one. But here it's done by, by a nonprofit. It's called Colorado Correctional Industries, and they do a lot of programs for the prisoners so that they can learn different, but dog training is one of them. They have, you know, Angora goats and the construction, all <gasps> kinds of different things. So when the people get out, you know, they may have something they can, a trade or, you know, a skill set. So it's a really cool, but it's really organized because here it's done through that program in Kansas. I think, you know, they just do it. Yep, sure, we'll take some dogs and, you know, what I, I don't know how well put together it is, but he wound up in that program in Kansas and working with an inmate, great dog. I mean, just an incredibly cool dog. Did not do other animals. So, of course, that's mm -hmm. one of the pity problems that, you know, people have put upon them. Right. Um, and oddly enough, about every 10th person he wasn't he never attacked anyone but he, he just wasn't a big fan of very few people but every now and again somebody would set him off mm -hmm. so in the prison program one of the other inmates thought it would be really funny to like pretend attack grant's <laughs> trainer and so of course the dog went right at the guy's throat he didn't even bite him because the guy was able to hold him back but that basically put him on death row so he lived for four or five years at my friend Kathy's place in one of those outdoor pens and he loved her and she walked him and, but, you know, yeah. but the best you can do when you have X, Y, Z, you know, 80 animals, 50, 60 animals, whatever she has at a given time to take care of. So my husband has gone on exactly one rescue with me and thank God because yeah. he is not, he cannot do it. He cannot, you know, look at these people and be like, uh-huh. Okay. Smile. Yeah. And you're done. He can't. He's literally like, listen here, you fucking asshole. I mean, he <laughs> cannot. I'm serious. Like, he, yeah. he's 74. He's 17 years older than me, my husband. And he is the biggest dog lover. He adopted a dog for me. That's how we met. Oh. Um, 
and so and thank God because we still had we're only recent empty nesters, and we have all you know seven dogs to take care of, and we've had as many as fifteen at a time. So he's here doing that while I'm you know off on the road rescuing dogs. But he saw Grant that pity in the pen at Kathy's, and he was literally like, we came home that night, and he said, I will not sleep unless we get that dog. We have got to figure out something, to, and we couldn't bring him here because we yeah. had 15 dogs at the time. And, you know, mostly old, fragile dogs. Like he could, whoops, hold on. Hang on. Uh, one sec. Yeah. Hey, Molly, I'm in the middle. Okay, that's my little, our youngest one. <laughs> anyway, she's up at CSU College. But anyway, um, so we got him and we got that building. <laughs> Because he can't, you know, we couldn't put him in the kennel with the regular population of dogs. Like he was set off by certain things. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, to be honest, he was probably the most beloved dog that's ever come through our doors. And he was not even a mill dog. Yeah. There are likenesses of Grant all over our kennel. He died two summers ago. He got stomach oh. cancer. Okay, first he has this little house back there, all insulated. He, he had a couch, but he ate it. Huge yard, all fenced with the no climb up top. He had a spa day every Friday. They had to clear the room to bring him into grooming because he did not like other dogs. And he lay on the floor like this, big fat belly damn dog. Like everybody was totally in love. He had his nails dremeled, scrubbed down every Friday for two and a half years. <laughs> what people did with him. I mean, he was so beloved there. Yeah. And he got sick. He got stomach cancer. When he got sick, the last three weeks of his life, every single night somebody slept with him in his house oh. and then and then we had to put him down so yeah. yeah so we we you know so that's grant's house so what we do is we have one pit bull at a time because i said look we if we were to open our hearts to pit bulls here one they're not breeding dogs it's not our mission this place would be full in five minutes and it yep. would be full forever yep. and ever and it would be you know we can't we have a mission but because of grant and mostly because of the problem that it is with the pities, huge animal welfare issue, as you well know. Mm -hmm. um, we try, we do what we can one at a time. So usually the ones we've had since him have all been heartworm dogs, good mm -hmm. temperament, sweet dogs, you know, needed to get through heartworm. Yeah. And, and yeah, we take whichever one, but you know, we're, but anyway, we try to have always one pit. In honor oh, I love that so Grant. much. Isn't that awesome? I love that. But we try to have one special pity that, you know, can either A, be adopted if it mm -hmm. can, or B, live its life out the way granted there. But just oh. all the time, because that's all we can do. But at least it's one at a time. Yeah. So. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah, oh. We love our pities there. <laughs> Believe yeah. me, our rehab guy who came from best friends, like the whole entire place would be pit bulls if it was <laughs> And, and yeah, a lot of us, to be honest, the thing is yeah. you know, it's not our mission. So, but we do try to help one at a time. That's amazing. So, that's All right, Teresa, I will let you have your evening. Oh, yeah. Back. Oh, God, yeah. Um, what, where can people find you learn more about National Mill Dog Rescue? NMDR.org is our website. We have a really, really active um, Facebook following. We post very interactive, you know, cool stuff every day. It's not, you know, it's not boring. The most cool stuff we post, I guess, or what, when it really spikes is when we're on the road on rescue. 
you know, people follow us from all over the world. Literally, we had one last time last week following from Tasmania. I'm like, wow, that's. Wow. A, I mean, obviously, it's mostly here, but we have people that follow Canada, Japan, all over the world. That's and when so we're on cool. the road on rescue, I mean, obviously, we can't show where we are picking yep. up the dogs, but we show the dogs and we interact. You know, I show little videos in the back of the truck when I'm taking care of them. If we have to overnight with dogs, we're usually doing that in a barn in Kansas. We show a video of that. And then we have a live offloading. When we come back to the kennel, we show it live at every single dog as they come off the truck. And that's usually somewhere, you know, a smaller run might be 30 dogs. A big run is 80 to 100 dogs. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's really, really fun. And people really get, you know, more and more, they get super engaged when we're on yeah. the road. Cause it's cool. You know, we're out there doing our thing and people get to see the dogs and they really appreciate it. So. Well, awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Teresa. We'll be in touch anytime. Yeah. Good to meet you, Keisha. Good for your good work out there. Thank Keep you. It up. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the animal rescue podcast. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your friends. Thank you.